Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. Today we sit down for a bite to eat and a chat with Luke Southwood, head chef of Bistro Dom, but he's much more than that. He was born in Papua New Guinea and cut his teeth in the kitchens of Barcelona before taking on some of Australia's finest and most exclusive restaurants. The most exclusive of all was the Sanctuary at Byron Bay, one of the world's top rehabilitation facilities and programs. It was here that Luke learned about the link between food and the mind and developing meals that heal the soul. His explanation of food psychology is fascinating. Luke has become somewhat of a kitchen counsellor. He's worked with struggling youth and helped them gain a sense of value and self-respect. It's particularly interesting when restaurant kitchens are known as stressful, intense and often brutal environments. And we don't often think about leadership and culture in this context. Luke talks about his own leadership approach and the dynamics of his team. Luke has an amazing story filled with great insights. Enjoy. Luke, thanks for joining Rooster Radio. Yep, no worries. Welcome to Bistro Dom. Yeah, fantastic. We're, we're sitting here at the front of your beautiful restaurant. Um, it's, uh, it's a very long, narrow setup. We've got some tables down the right-hand side, and we're sitting at a table with uh, what looks to be meat, is it? What, um, what have we got here? <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it, uh, yes, uh, perceptions can be deceiving. It is, um, it is seared yellowfin South Australian tuna. Wow. Um, this is one of our uh, new dishes on our entrees at the moment. Um, what we've done is source some uh, amazing uh, local uh, yellowfin tuna, um, which we get in fresh. It, it, it is rolled in a crust of uh, dried black olive and fennel seed. Uh, we have around it a orange and miso emulsion. Um, it has an olive emulsion and a lemon emulsion. Uh, with the miso, you have some avocado, some microherbs, and a little bit of spring onion oil just to finish it off. Um, quite indicative of the style of food we're doing at the moment. A um, little bit sort of different from, uh, mm. from what you're... But there's definitely a lot of influence mm. going on there. I mean, there's a Japanese influence. There's uh, A lot of our food has a strong Mediterranean influence. So I think this, uh, this dish particularly marries well, um, you know, that fresh Mediterranean mm. vibe that you get of, of, of eating healthy and eating, you know, very fresh food, uh, light on uh, in, in all of the butters and the fats, mm. um, but with that uh, beautiful, clean Japanese aesthetic, which uh, they understand better than just about anyone. Beautiful. Now, I'm going to ask a really corny question here. Um, a bit like a musician, where do you start with a dish like this? Like, as a songwriter, you know, a lot of songwriters get their... Um, inspiration from different areas like where would you begin with a dish like this the inspiration behind a dish is is, is a really uh, it's 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 a it's a very um, holistic process I think to come up with a with a with a new with a new dish and I think um, I, I can't help but go back to uh, to the who's the guy who's known as the father of modern cookery um, Augusta Scofia who who wrote the guide to modern cookery in 1907 this was the bloke who basically can be credited for inventing modern a la carte cookery and um, and in his preface of the uh, guide to modern cookery over 100 years old now he writes that um, there is a very finite number of different ingredients to use and a finite number of ways to use them and that probably every dish in the world has already been done um, and when you do come up with an original creation or you toil for hours and hours to come up with something new um, very quickly it gets big borrowed and stolen by all of those other people around you and it turns it, it becomes and I think one of the lovely things about food is that um is that you can't really own a recipe or a dish um, so there's a lot of different influence going on in that dish and I, I suppose different ideas that have evolved over years um, and then 
I think this one came to me at about 3.30 in the morning when I was lying there pretty sleepless and, and, and thinking about how I was going to change our tuna and lift it. And, 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 you know, the olive was the first thing that came to me because the tuna and the olive is something that is not very often done and, uh, and, and, and I think is a match that you've done with a little bit of subtlety can really work. So that was my idea originally, was to try and marry olive and tuna together in a subtle way. And then I started working with... I, I very much, when I work with uh, new recipes, um, one part of it is the artistic approach and what, what, you know, what, what, what you want to do. The second, probably most important part of it is what you're capable of doing in terms of the kitchen and the team. So every time I bring a new dish onto the menu, I work my way through an entire service and go through... In your head, like just playing it out? And go through what it would look like if I get an order of three of those next to four of those and five of those. And then once I start playing through it in my head, I can see, well, is that going to work? Can the team handle it? Do we have the equipment to handle it? So as much as is the dish going to work from a flavour point of view, I think the really important question is, is it going to work from a logistical point of view as well? Mm. Um, And is it going to fit in well with all of the other things that we've got on our menu? Um, I think the third thing that I look for is argument on the plate. <laughs> so, um, you know, <clears throat> if there's one ingredient on there that seems to stand out and not match well with all of the other ingredients, then we take the dish back to the drawing board again. Mm. Um, and, 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 and also if that dish, you know, in, in when, when I play it out in a service in my head, if there is one little hiccup or one thing where it's not going to work with the flow of the kitchen, then again we take it away and go back to the drawing board again. Now I've been very quiet because I've been chipping away at that tuna. And In fact, it is I don't magnificent. think Luke is eating any of this. Um, I, I know <laughs> what it all tastes like. I, I figure you guys are the guinea pigs today. So, yeah, the, the uh, it's prawn, magnificent. The prawns have just come out. and the, Yes, indeed. James, you seem to be uh, protecting them <laughs> in some way. Just keeping on my side of the table, Andrew. So, Luke, do you want to maybe describe what, what we've got in front yeah, of us with the prawns? Yeah, I'm very, uh, very proud of this dish. Um, I'd probably... Uh, Classify this as a, as a signature Southwood dish. Um, mm. uh, it's a it's a, it's a reincarnation of a dish that I've been doing for many many years in in a few different guises. But the basic of it is uh, the basis of it is is pretty much um, the same as as, as 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 and it's a combination that I just absolutely love. And uh, and I think it's also very unique to Bistro Dom and what we're doing. What we have is some fresh South Australian Gulf prawns. Um, one of the things that makes this dish a standout is that we do source our prawns directly from the boat. Um, we have a uh, company called Free Range Seafood who um, who basically trawl, um, go out and fish the Great Southern Ocean. So you commission the prawns? Well, not as such. Those guys are already <laughs> doing the job. Uh, we've just jumped in and said, would you mind supplying us directly rather than going through a middleman? Um, what makes these prawns so special is, um, is a the, the sustainability with which they're caught, um, uh, the... Uh, these guys particularly are so big on uh, sustainable fisheries. Um, they only uh, fish a very, very small percentage of... Uh, they only open a very... Like, I think about 7% of the Gulf gets open to their fishing every year, and of that 7%, they fish two. Um, they also have uh, CSIRO scientists on board their boats, and if they measure every catch, and if the, if the catch comes in too small, they shut that uh, fishery down and move on to another one. So there is a huge amount of uh, care put into the sustainability of the product, um, and also... Um, the other thing I really love is that these prawns are not treated in the way n- prawns normally are, which is when they're caught on the boat, they're dipped in a chemical that stops them turning black and extends the shelf life of the prawn. Uh, it's purely a cosmetic thing that um, a lot of the fishermen do, and what it does is it means that they can hold the prawns on display for probably you know four or five days longer without them discolouring. Uh, the end result of that on the prawn is it breaks down the flesh and you end up with a substandard product 
that has a longer shelf life. Well, these guys um, specifically and purposefully don't dip our prawns for us so that we get the freshest and the best product available. Um, and they really are, when you taste them, you'll see what I mean. So that's the prawn side of it. The prawns are sitting on a bed of uh, white gazpacho, uh, also known uh, classically in Spain as ajo blanco or white garlic. Um, it's a very, very classical, ancient and traditional um, soup in parenthesis, I suppose, because it is like a cold soup, like a gazpacho. Um, with that, we have some muscatel grapes, um, some Spanish jamón, mm. like the cured uh, serrano ham. Mon, if you um, haven't heard, um, Andrew just took a mouthful. <laughs> and yeah, and, and, and the nodding and the yams <laughs> yeah. coming from over there uh, tells us that we've, uh, we're onto a bit of a winner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's finished with a, with, a, with a slurry made from, uh, from paprika and salt that we then dry out and we turn into a paprika salt that adds a nice smokiness to the dish um, and a little bit of garlic and parsley oil. You, you talk about the passion for a dish and like one of your favourites. Um, is it possible to articulate what that passion is? What is it about a dish that gives you pleasure as opposed to another dish? Like is it the preparation? Because clearly you don't eat them every night. We, I taste every dish hundreds of times a day. So every single time that a dish goes out, um, I will be checking or every time we do it, we make a batch of anything. Um, so basically this is a dish that I've tried thousands and thousands of times and I never get sick of it. I mean, I never get bored of that combination so of flavours. So what, what, what is it about, say, this dish that, that I think brings it, that emotion? I think it taps into... Um, a lot of my early training in kitchens um, there's a lot of very authentic classical flavors going on there which uh, were, were you know was drummed into me pretty early on in my career um, you know that, 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 that one thing is reinventing the wheel but another oh, thing mm. is understanding and respecting the traditions surrounding food mm. um, so I think this uh, ticks a lot of boxes for me because it's very grounded in that thousands of years of tradition um, and, and and very much not messing with the principles behind that but at the same time we've taken it turned it on its head a little bit and combined it with other ingredients that wouldn't normally go along with those uh, basic sort of uh, traditional techniques um, I also just think the combination of the gazpacho the creaminess that you get from that with no dairy in that sauce at all by the way there's no cream or no milk oh, wow. but you would be very mistaken for thinking that it was mm. full of cream uh, the almonds is what gives it the creaminess um, but the combination of the creaminess of and, and the tanginess of the gazpacho you know the earthiness the salty sweetness of the prawn then you get that real you know pure sweetness in the grape which really basically levels everything out and then and then you've got the smokiness coming through from the paprika um and then the, the ham which i think you know just basically i mean the spanish jamon for me is uh, is just is just a spectacular product and um and until you've tried it i mean people go is it similar to prosciutto no it's not uh it's nothing like it. it's worlds apart um you can't compare apples and pears um but this dish would not work with prosciutto it does work with the jamon mm. um and that's purely because of the uh, technique involved in the in the smoking and the uh and the curing of the dish. Just before um, we move on to the next dish, um, tell us, I guess, from a broader perspective, how you're designing your overall menu, the, the type of themes, and what is the, I guess, what do you want your customer to really take away from the experience of dining with you? Yeah, um, interesting question. Um, uh, it is, it, is a, it is a very, very complicated process designing a menu because, like I said, it's artistry and production. And, and, and finances. And, and finances, absolutely right. So you've got to maintain this kind of healthy balance in your head of, A, you know, is, 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 am I creating something that I like but 
is that going to mess up my team when it comes to the service time and the producing of it? Um, a lot of chefs, I think, go out, when they go out there and they write menus, a lot of it is about what I want to cook, what I like to cook, but very, very often what gets forgotten about is, is, is the budget, uh, which is obviously very important because you've got to maintain, you know, keep your cost centres in line and, and, and B, um, you know, what, are we capable of producing that with the equipment we've got, the space we've got, the room we've got and, the, and, and, and you know, the team that we've got on hand. Um, I think when it comes to designing the menu, every restaurant I've worked at is a little bit different and I definitely design my food around the environment that we're in. I think one thing that I've really in the last uh, stage of my career have really started to do is strip back levels rather than add levels and really look for that simplicity in the food and and to highlight the 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 actual beauty of the ingredient um, and 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 avoid that argument that I was talking about earlier on the plate. Um, I think the, the th- you know the, the third really or you know the, the other really important thing for us is um, is that when people come and eat the food at Bistro Dom, uh, what we want it to do is to tap into a memory that they may have of. Uh, because we've all got these these incredible early memories uh, surrounding food, which is the, you know obviously our most primordial reward system, um, and we all have these memories of eating things when we were young and when we were kids that stick with us for the rest of our lives. And, and you know scientists have proven this actually that there is an area of our brain that hangs on to these memories and, uh, and 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 has the ability to make us very happy um, to bring this uh, you know wave of nostalgia back to us when we eat it um, and 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 tap into uh, you know an, an early memory of uh, of a time when life was a lot more simple and uh, and as kids we were enjoying food for the sake of food so we do get quite a lot of comments from people when they come in and try our food said oh that reminded me of my grandmother's this or you know that's uh, tapped into uh, something and, and I think if we can not only provide people with a memorable venue um, a great location um, a delicious meal but then if on top of that we can evoke some sort of really early happy memory of a better time when you know things were less complicated and they and they and 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 and, and we can bring a bit of that back um, then we've reached another level of the food that is uh, a little bit unattainable so i'm going to use that as a bit of a segue um, into if you were going to describe some of your happiest, uh, simplest memories of being a child, what would they have been? Can you actually articulate that yourself? Yeah. Um, look, I was always uh, really, really interested in food, even as a small kid. I mean, I, I started cooking for my family when I was about seven, I reckon. You were was the born in Papua, Papua New, New Guinea. Papua yeah, New Guinea. yeah. And, and that was also, I mean, very very different uh, environment to grow up in uh, um, you know growing up in, in New Guinea in the uh, early 70s um, you know all the way through the 70s basically um, it was when did you leave sorry uh, 1978 yeah. I was born in 69 so okay. I was about I was about eight when I left um, so they're formative years aren't they they really were yeah. yeah and um and you know we grew up with uh, with 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 the native Papua New Guineans we, we were living with Chim- with a Chimbu family um, and so very much the uh, we, we were growing a lot of our own fruit and vegetables. You know, we had custard apple trees and mango trees and, you know, all of these incredible tropical fruits growing. So one of my earliest memories is literally going out and picking mangoes off a tree and just stuffing my face with them, trying to avoid getting bit, bitten by red ants that, you know, lived in the trees. Um, um, 
and 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 also look you know credit goes to my mum uh, who was an amazing cook um and uh, and 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 her father as well was also a bit of an australian gastronome i suppose um, um alf walk was one of the uh, founders of the backers club in australia um worked extensively uh, with the alumba winery his whole life and uh, and did a lot of those very early barossa valley uh, um you know amazing dinners uh, in the 60s and the 70s that really gave birth, I suppose, to the Australian food scene, which uh, previous to that didn't really exist. So Alf was one of these guys I remember as a, as a kid going and visiting my grandparents and I'd watch him spending two or three days preparing a meal, you know, like making his stocks by hand and uh, going out and catching the yabbies and uh, doing everything from scratch and, and, and really the passion that he had for the food. I think that passed on to my mum. Uh, she was a very adventurous cook. Uh, we ate some really weird, wacky stuff when we were kids, uh, most of which at the time I didn't appreciate. But now later on in life, I look back and I, I really, really respect and appreciate the fact that she did really push us to try some stuff that, you know, most kids probably wouldn't normally try. Um, and I think, you know, as, as a result, gave me this uh, adventurousness and, um, and, 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 you know, made me want to uh, experiment and explore that more. So was that... I guess as a youngster, first taking an interest in cooking in Papua New Guinea. What you mentioned adventure. What else did you take away from those early years um, in terms of, uh, I guess, the whole experience of cooking and, and preparing meals? Well, it was. I, I, I think um, growing up in New Guinea didn't just affect my food. It probably affected a lot of my outlook on life, um, and certainly how I think about food um, is, is 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 very much tied in with that um it was a very impoverished country at the time for for people who weren't expats like ourselves i mean obviously we were an expatriate family my dad was uh, working as an engineer over there um you know living 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 a a, a middle class life but surrounded by this huge poverty and um and a, and, a, and a native population that was still pretty much living at subsistence level uh you know a lot of a lot of those people you know right up right up until a century ago were still considered to be living in the stone age um so there their way, uh, you know, the the, the, the the Chimbu way of looking at food and, uh, and, and, and dealing with food was something that sort of very much, uh, I suppose, in, ingrained in my, in my psyche as well. Did in, you follow any of the traditional um, patterns or rituals with... We, we, with ate, we, we ate, we ate um, uh, a lot of the traditional food um, uh, and, and Kamani and Gia, who were the, 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 the Chimbu family who lived with us, they used to cook and prepare food in the traditional way. Um, they would do a mau mau, which is similar to a, uh, a New Zealand hungi, um, and that would be something they'd do probably a couple of times a year, dig a big pit in the ground, fill it full of uh, rocks, you know, build a big fire in there and, and, and throw, you know, whole whole beasts in there and, 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 and you know sweet potatoes and yams and, uh, and plantains and all of these kinds of things and then cook this amazing feast I think, I think my mum my, my said one of the earliest uh, memories that she had of me with food is being at one of these Mau Mau's and going up there was a bowl of sheep's eyeballs that had been uh, cooked and marinated and apparently I was just hoeing into these and just <laughs> loving them um, you know uh, which was quite a delicacy amongst the Papua New Guineans uh, uh, people and um, and yeah I mean I don't remember that but, uh, but certainly that gives an indication of an early age you know sucking on sheep's eyeballs is not something that probably most people grow up doing that's um, not the third dish in front of us here is it <laughs> no, yes you now have the dish of she- uh, bistro doms uh, yeah slow braised no 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 we don't have the sheep's eyeball on the menu unfortunately um, but what we do have in front of us now is a uh, 18 hour slow cooked pork cheek um, we use the pork cheek as opposed to the belly uh, which a lot of people use it has a I often say um, if pig could be foie gras um, this is what the pork cheek the texture and the consistency of it is almost like that it has a 
like a very soft, luscious kind of pate. Um, the, the, the fat content is, of course, quite high, um, but it's good fat, um, as we know these days. Uh, there are good Luke, fats I and there are bad to, fats. I'm doing a high fat, high fat diet at the moment. <laughs> Fantastic. So well, that's that's all good. High fat. <laughs> well, well, look, we started off with two fairly healthy dishes uh, where we're looking after your liver and your yeah, kidneys. Yeah, this and, looks uh, incredible. Um, but yeah, and, and look, this is again very Five much stars. rooted in, uh, in classical cuisine. Um, the, the pork is cooked very slow, very long. Uh, it's a very tough cut of meat, but cooking it for 18 hours at about 80 degrees um, basically allows all of that fat just to render down. Um, and what you end up with, as you can, as you can taste, is this incredibly soft um, with a slight bit of crisp still on the skin. And we've married that with a uh, very classical uh, cassoulet beans. Um, so so a, a very classical sort of southern French style of uh, cooking white haricot beans uh, with some chorizo, um, some vegetables, a little bit of tomato, paprika and a tiny bit of cayenne pepper just to give it a little bit of bite. Um, sitting on top of that is some shaved apple and fennel which is dressed with uh, olive oil, lemon juice and parsley um, just to cut through the, uh, the richness of the pork. Um, and, uh, and again, look, it's, um, it is a, uh, it's a dish that is very much rooted in you know, very real peasant food, that one. It's, uh, it, it's utilising an underused cut of meat, uh, one that is generally uh, disregarded and goes into pet food or, 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 or you know, like um, uh, byproducts. Um, and, 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 and the cassoulet beans, I mean, it's, it's essentially a, uh, a, a vamped up baked beans with, with, uh, with pork and um, pig, pork and beans, uh, but, but done in a, in a way that is a little bit different. Magnificent again. So I guess to continue on with your, your story, how did you end up in Barcelona? Well, um, well, from Papua New Guinea um, in about 1978, uh, the family of things were getting a bit hairy over there. The political scene was uh, getting pretty full on. There was a lot of violence going on and um, uh, the, my mother and father decided to move to the UK. So um, we went from Papua New Guinea to London. It's a bit of a culture shock, uh, one jungle to another. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then my parents eventually separated and uh and in the early 80s my mum uh went went to spain uh for uh about three months and um she 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 was very much involved in 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 language and linguistics and stuff like that um and she loved it so much she decided to stay so um uh, she ended up moving to Barcelona and, and living there with her second with her second husband. Um, and, and by this point, you were how old? In, in uh, the first time I went over to Spain, I was uh, about thirteen, and I went over for about six months. Went to school over there for a while. Didn't really gel with me. I was uh, really struggling with the language and the uh, and you know being a being a, an Aussie kid. I'd just come from England. It was right at the time when the Falklands War had just kicked off, and there were a lot of uh, Argentinian kids at my school who, uh, even though I was an Aussie, they didn't see me as such. It was like you're a pom. Um, so it was a little bit of a. I stayed for six months the first time. Uh, went back to the UK again for a couple more years, and then ended up moving to Spain when I was 15. Um, left school a bit, a bit early uh, and, uh, and fell straight into kitchens at that point. Well, you, you say you fell straight into kitchens, but was the writing on the wall, was there, was there an underlying ambition uh, that you wanted to pursue cooking more seriously? or It didn't happen really like that. I mean, I'd always, like I said, I'd always loved food and I'd loved cooking and I was really, really interested in, in preparing different dishes and had for quite a few years already cooked for my family at home. Um, it meant that I didn't have to do the dishes afterwards, so that was a bonus. But, um, but actually, the cooking side of it, I really loved. And when I first went to Spain, uh, the first job I got was not in kitchens at all. It was actually working in the uh, National Archive of Barcelona in the bookbinding section. And I was, uh, you know, um, I, that was through one of my mum's students got me this position there, and I was binding, you know, thousand-year-old books, uh, you know, handwritten in parchment. And I was, uh, but it was. 
it was an unpaid position um, because they didn't really have a budget to pay a young apprentice and I went in there as an unpaid apprentice. Um, really loved doing the bookbinding, did that for, uh, you know, part time for about a year. Um, but what I realised very quickly is that uh, bookbinding is a dying art. Um, you know, this was right in the, uh, in, in the time when uh, personal computers and uh, the internet was just starting to kick off. Uh, nowadays, look around, there's not too many bookbinders in the main streets. Yeah. Of, uh, I think bookbinding's been disrupted. Yeah, definitely not a growth industry. Um, and, uh, and, and, and look, it's a real pity because it really is a, 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 an incredible craft and something that I'm still very interested in. But I realised pretty quickly as a young guy in Spain that I needed to find a way to make some uh, some 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 cash and uh, and and you know pay for pay my own way um and i just happened to be walking down a street and there was a sign in the window saying cook wanted um i had no experience whatsoever it was a small 30-seater macrobiotic restaurant that did a, a small menu every day lunch only monday to friday and i just walked in and went give me a job um and they asked if i had some experience and i kind of went yeah <laughs> <laughs> Didn't tell them I'd cooked at home, but that was the yes is I've cooked at home. And, uh, and the next thing you know, um, I had an apron on and I was in a commercial kitchen and uh, working for um, some pretty crazy people. And, uh, and I think it was at that point that I realised that I really was cut out for it. Um, well, it took a while, but, um, but that was definitely my first job was that, was that one in this small restaurant called Lucky Leia. Um, there was only a couple of people working in there, including this crazy Moroccan chef called uh, Santos. Um, who uh, who taught me very much how uh, you know how to be a hardcore individual, but he was a very very hard taskmaster and um, and but I really really related to that. I think at that stage in my life I needed a bit of uh, direction. Um, I needed a little bit of discipline, and I needed you know like um, you know to be set in the in the right direction on my career path. And certainly uh, Santos and uh, Lucky Leia helped me do that. And I realised quickly that this is something that I really love doing. So what was food culture and kitchen culture like in Spain and how did it influence you? In the 80s pre-Olympics, um, Barcelona was still very much not on the tourist map as it is today. I mean, today Barcelona is one of the number one tourist destinations in Europe. Um, back in the 80s, um, it was still... It wasn't obviously there was a lot of uh, you know tourism going on, but not like it is now. Um, it was very much... Uh, not on the gastronomic map the way it is today, in which you know Spain per capita has more three Michelin star restaurants than any other country in Europe right now, and Spain is being very much regarded and considered around the world as being at the cutting edge of gastronomy. Um, but the funny thing about that is that the Spaniards were doing all of that stuff all along. It's just no one had ever paid any attention to it at that point. You know, it hadn't actually received all of the so. I was so that so those that those masters of uh, of modern cuisine that are around now like Arzac and uh, and and Ferran Adria from El Bulli and uh, and uh, you know all of these incredible chefs that are coming out of Spain they were already doing all of that stuff back then and all of their proteges that had come out of their kitchens were were following those traditions and 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 and, and moving the goalposts creating all of this incredible amazing out there cuisine um, but no one from the rest of Europe or the world was really paying attention to it and Spain was quite happy with that because they don't like beating their own drum and in fact you know what they the Spanish way of thinking about it often is like well we don't really care if you don't know about it because we like it and we want it for you know it, it, we, we, they don't really want to stand on a soapbox and, 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 and shout out to the world how great they are all the time uh, unlike 
maybe the French or the Italians are more uh, in tune with that. The, the Spanish, I think, are much more humble in their approach to food. Um, and, you know, I was really fortunate early on in my career to work with some of the real greats of the Spanish food industry. Um, uh, not, not, not very well-known names, um, but people who definitely had a major influence on moulding the, 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 the Spanish food culture, especially the northern Spanish food culture today, um, and instilling in me... Um, the fact that you know there is thousands and thousands of years of tradition at stake here, and, and I think that was the most fundamental lesson I learned really early on was yes, you know move the goalposts, break the boundaries, you know change things, but don't mess with the tradition, you know because because it is it is it is stayed like that. It's a bit like you know the the eastern water dragon is a reptile that hasn't changed or evolved for over you know for a couple of hundred thousand years. That's because it's so bloody good. The design is already good. It doesn't need to, whereas all of these other reptiles around it have changed and evolved. And I think the Spanish food is a similar kind of thing. Um, you know, they really are very good at, 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 at reinventing and rechanging, but what they tend to do is just stay very grounded in the, uh, in, in, in the purity and the importance of what the tradition is. So as you were given more opportunity and your career began to, um, to sort of go forward, what was the first or um, what was the position where you were first given sort of role of head chef? What was the first sort of break in your eyes for your career? Um, funnily enough, um, I started at that restaurant, Lucky Leia, the macrobiotic restaurant. As I said, it was only a small place. Um, I think I'd been there about six or seven months when this crazy head chef that I've just mentioned who was very fiery and, uh, and, 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 and a bit of a, a, bit of a uh, explosive individual. I can't remember exactly what, but he lost the plot one day, um, threw his knives down, said, stuff it, I'm out of here, and walked just before lunch service, at which point the, er the owner uh, came into the kitchen. I'd just turned 16, really didn't have a lot of experience, and turned around to me and went, you're it. Um, which, uh, and... and, 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 and I had really no idea what I was doing. I mean, yes, I could cook and I knew how to make food taste right, but I didn't have the knowledge or the experience or the background to take over and run even a small kitchen like that. But I was thrown in the deep end and um, with the help of the owner, um, he didn't employ another chef. Um, I stayed on and, um, and obviously he was happy with the food I was preparing and it was really uh, straight in the deep end and a baptism of fire. And, um, and I found myself very, very quickly uh, in charge of making the food and designing the menus and coming up with the produce every day. Um, and that lasted for about another four or five months. Um, and then at that point, I really was starting to feel the pressure and really feeling like I wasn't ready for this. I yeah, think. 17. And, um, and I was, 16, only, yeah, I was only 16. And, um, and at that point, I decided to uh, go and look further afield and, um, and get some more experience in different restaurants. Would you describe so, yourself at the time as ambitious? Were you, after that sink or swim moment, you survived, you did well, you realised you could do it. Did you think, geez, I'm going to make a real career out of this? Or were you still floating and working it out? It's weird. I, 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 it was never really a conscious decision to, uh, to, to be a career chef. Um, I think when I reached the age of 32 and I realised that I'd been cooking for longer than I hadn't been cooking in my life, that's when I realised that I was a career chef. When I, when, I, when I went, shit, I've been cooking for 17 years and I've only been alive for 32. 
uh, at that point I realised that it wasn't a clear-cut choice, it wasn't a clear-cut decision, but that obviously that was a way that, you know, and, 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 it, was, and it was the path that... And, and I always felt incredibly comfortable in the environment of a kitchen. Um, but I certainly did make a concerted effort at that point after I left Lakilea to then go and identify um, the restaurants that I wanted to work in. Um, so basically... Um, I started looking around and going, okay, what are the places that I, that, that you know, around me that 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 look amazing, that the I read the menus and they excite me, and I look inside and um, and go, this is the place I want to work, and very much after that point. Um, it's kind of how I went about finding my jobs. Uh, not so much waiting for a position to come up, but identifying a place um, which was... Uh, and, and not always are you going to be able to get a job at that time, but if you wait long enough and if, you, uh, if you're persistent enough, um, a lot of the time it pays off and they'll give you a chance and uh, to get in. So then how did the opportunity to, to be a chef at one of the more prestigious, if that's the right word, rehab uh, centres in Australia, how did that come about? Well, exactly that way, funnily enough. Um, I had been running a dish restaurant and raw bar in Byron Bay uh, for about three and a half years. Um, we'd had a hat there um, uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide, um, uh, which I'm very proud of and, and, and was at the time. Uh, is it the, the way the, the way that you say, is it, were you hatted? Like what's... Ha- we were a hatted restaurant. Hatted yeah. restaurant. Yeah, yeah so yeah. the Sydney Morning Herald uh, runs a scale of, um, yeah. in, in its Good Food Guide, of one, two and three right. hats. Um, you know, just to get a hat, um, uh, one hat in, in, in Australia uh, is, a, is a great achievement. Um, it puts you in the, you know, the top couple of percent of the restaurants in the country. I have only ever been to one. Have you? Nah. Think would there have been one in Bright in Victoria? Yeah, they're 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 they're, are, they're all over. Anyway. They're, they're spread all over the yeah. country. I, I mean, Adelaide, Adelaide has a system of hats. Bistro Dom actually at this stage uh, got a hat this year as well. So okay. you know we are a hatted restaurant as Fantastic. well. Um, but it is a little bit. I mean, in New South Wales, it's taken a little bit more seriously, I, I suppose. And um, and and the standards of the judging is very 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 high. Um, and it is a quite quite a difficult thing to achieve and maintain, I think. So um, so we've been running this hatted restaurant, uh, uh, dish restaurant, raw bar. Um, the Sanctuary uh, Byron Bay was a different um, model of rehab that was set up by a guy called Michael Goldberg, who uh, was an incredible individual who, who had looked at the model of group rehabilitation and had been involved in that himself and um, had gone through it himself and it hadn't worked for him. He'd, he'd looked at the statistics around group rehabs and seen that there's, they only get like a 10% success rate across the board. So 9 out of 10 people who come into rehab are going to go out and relapse um, because it, they're treated you know, as, as, as a group. And, it's, um, and I think what Michael quickly turned around and realised is, look, this, these programs don't work for me. Um, and he decided to develop and design his own recovery program. And so what he did was go out and look for the best practitioners that he could find. So he went and got himself a, um, a personal trainer, he got himself a dietitian, he got himself a, a psychiatrist, um, he went and got himself a shiatsu practitioner, he found himself a, a great chef. And uh, basically he got all of these different people who were the best in their field together, brought them into him and said, OK, I would like you guys to design a program for me to help me get well, uh, to, 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 to get me you know, clean again. And, to, uh, and lo and behold, he went through this program, um, did, did, did it intensively every day for about a few months and got clean. Um, and then he figured out and he said, look, if this works for me, I'm going to implement this whole program for anyone who, 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 who needs it um, and set up this 
Sanctuary Byron Bay, which uh, so effectively, you know, without going into too much detail, um, the sanctuary utilises a bunch of different properties around the Shire, very, very high end. A lot of them are holiday rentals. Um, they go and strip the property out, put all of their own stuff in, so their own beds, their own bedding, you know, all of their own equipment. Um, and then, um, you know, the, we get the brief on who the client is going to be. Um, uh, very, very wealthy, very influential, very famous people came through the sanctuary while I was there, none of whom I can mention. Um, <laughs> Drug and alcohol? Uh, or drugs, well, everything, really. Everything. I mean, I mean, I worked with... Uh, with, I mean, I could tick off all of the, I mean, you know, all of the types of different drug addictions. Um, al alcoholism was a big one, but we also worked with people with eating disorders. Uh, we worked with uh, people who had um, psychiatric disorders. Uh, we worked with people uh, multiple personalities. Um, you know, and, and 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 so I think the thing about the sanctuary is it didn't just look at the symptoms. It goes a lot deeper than that and looks at the underlying causes of why people have ended up the way they 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 are and 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 what it is that that the why they're damaging themselves in the way they are and, um, and, and tries to get to the root of the problem. Um, but going back to your question of how did I end up at the sanctuary, I, I, I was fascinated because Michael used to once a week, um, the, the, the clients would be taken out for a meal and one of the favourite places they used to like to bring them was to dish. Interestingly enough, um, you know, when they bring the clients to dish, we get a phone call beforehand saying we're bringing in a client, we'd have to strip all of the wine glasses off the table, we'd have to make sure there was no alcohol anywhere near, all of the weight stuff had to be briefed on not triggering the, the client, you don't know <laughs> an offer, the, you know, and so, and, and we also had to be very careful about what we were utilising in the food, um, you know, so obviously there's, uh, you know, nothing that it can be and so I was I was fascinated by this and fascinated and I would I would see that you know the, these people bringing in their clients I got to, to have a good rapport with Michael and um, and then when Ben and Belinda decided that um, they were going to sell dish um, I I was kind of ready for a bit of a break I'd, I'd been really pushing myself really hard for a long time and and I wanted to do something a bit different so I approached Michael who at the time had a few personal chefs working for him um, and uh, and approached him about coming on board as a personal chef to work with his clients. Um, very quickly I got promoted to the position of a catering manager um, and as the sanctuary then took off and uh, it only just was in its starting stages then, um, I ended up running a team of, I think we had at, at our peak about nine personal chefs uh, dealing with up to 12 different clients at one time, all at different venues, all at different houses. And I think what for me was most amazing about that whole experience was quite how much of the program was rooted in food. Um, because when these people arrive, um, they come, they've obviously been uh, a, a very wealthy, very powerful people who are used to having yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir um, all the time. They arrive at the sanctuary and they're stripped of everything that they have. Their phone is taken away, their wallet's taken away, their money's taken away. Suddenly they go from being, you know, this uh, very powerful person to being somebody with no power whatsoever. They have all of, their, all of their trappings stripped away from them and whatever it is that they're doing, the coke or the alcohol or the drugs or whatever it is that they're into is completely gone. So my job, I was the first person to meet the clients on arrival. Uh, myself would be there, a nurse would be there. And the very, very first thing that was really up to me to do would be to prepare them a meal that would tap into that fundamental childhood reward centre. Because that never goes away. It doesn't matter how much shit you do in your life. It doesn't matter how much you put into yourself. We all still have that, one, that fundamental food reward, which drives us to eat every day. I mean, if you could imagine if... If food wasn't a pleasure, can you imagine how much of a pain in the bum it would be to eat every day? I mean, it really would. It would really be an absolute hassle to go through all of the rigmarole of preparing this stuff. But we do have this, this, this chemical system going in our brain which drives us to 
eat food and reproduce, you know, and those two things go hand in hand. They really do. And without one, you can't have the other. And I think that, you know, that, that, that was what the sanctuary was all about. It's about tapping into the fundamental reward system that still exists and giving people still that, 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 that pleasure and that sort of that amazing memory of what life was like before things got really messed up for them. Um, the other interesting question that I would always ask them when they arrive, one of the very first things I would ask them is not what do you really like to eat, what I would ask them is what will you absolutely not eat? What will you refuse to eat? What is the food that you absolutely detest and hate and will not even look at? And then one of the things I would try and do would be feed them that food in a way that they enjoyed throughout the time that they were there, thus changing their perception of what they like and what they don't like and what, and also allowing the food, you know, again, to have that sort of psychological effect of making them realise that the way they've set their life up into these little squares or into these little categories doesn't necessarily have to stay like that, you know. You thought you hated Brussels sprouts. I've fed you cream Brussels sprouts with some lamb and you've just finished it off, told me it was amazing and then I've told you you ate Brussels sprouts, you know. And so, you know, this is something that would be a, very much a big step for these people a lot of times. And then incorporate um, cooking classes into this. So, so identify the foods that they really love. Some people would love a, you know, a chicken and sweet corn soup would really touch them or, you know, some amazing, you know, like a simple pasta or, you know, everyone's a bit different. But then once you actually realise what it is that is driving this person's specific reward system, um, then teach them give them the skills to make that themselves and to go off and be able to make it for other people as well. It's, it's really interesting because I, and surprising the influence of food in rehabilitation. Like how, how much research are you putting in before you're constructing these meals to influence the psychology? Are you working with the psychologist? Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, that's a huge part of it. And what made it so beneficial, I think, from a chef's point of view was that every week, twice a week, we would go into the uh, to the headquarters of the sanctuary, sit down in the meeting rooms, and all of the practitioners, all of the uh, of the treatment team would get together. So you'd have like. 20 different people, all of whom were coming from very different walks of life. Some would be doctors who were very much practicing med- Western medicine, and then you'd have Chinese herbalists, you'd have, um, you know, uh, you know, shiatsu practitioners, as I said, we'd have, uh, you know, nutritionists, and we'd have uh, personal trainers, we'd have the psychologists and the psychiatrists, and they would all come together. And we would discuss each client individually. So the Chinese herbal medicine people would say from their perspective what was going on inside the body, whether there was heat or whether there was cold, whether the liver was you know, being affected. And then they would then impart to me what particular foods would be beneficial to help with uh, you know, cooling the body down, heating the body up. Then the Western practitioners would come in and talk about the blood sugar levels and you know, all of what was going on inside from a, from a Western point of view and what, again, what particular ingredients or foods we should use or avoid in order to... And, 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 and so as a result, every single client would have their entire diet and their entire menu uh, and, and the foods that they ate completely tailored for them um, and... and, and, and and I think, again, hence why we ended up getting such amazing results from it. I mean, what a profound anecdote. And it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because when these people are having everything stripped away from them, an incredibly traumatic recalibration, yep. and 
you have the ability to dish them up something which is the one thing that it makes them feel a little bit safe yeah. or a little bit comfortable in that moment. And Absolutely. then not on top of that, to then use that food to then shift their perceptions. And then, Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, you would never it have It gives me goosebumps yeah, just talking I mean, about it's it. It really does. Completely and, and, and look, honestly, it was, it was such an incredible experience and the transformations that I personally saw yeah. while I was doing it from people who came in just absolutely a rock bottom, completely broken, you know, completely destroyed. Um, and and then to see not just the food, but 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 how the whole program working together. And what I really really take my hat off to Michael for is that he has he got the Australian Medical Association to change their their their, their, their regulations to allow him to do what he was doing in that environment to allow people to come in and detox to be able to administer to them medications that would help them through the detox as well. But then to go and to turn around and to, to actually acknowledge that food is you know such an ancient fundamental part, and not only that but it's it's something that we are fast losing track of you know like we are we in the, in the 40s and the 50s food technologists and scientists came along upended the whole world started introducing all of this you know really really fake garbage into our diets which has made us depressed and unhappy and obese and the other thing that I think the sanctuary did was very much do these incredible studies um, which was done long before any other doctors or, or, or scientists really got involved but the sanctuary was studying the correlations between um obesity depression and anxiety and food and so you know we we we, we were, and, and and also the effect that when you you know if you, if you are damaging yourself uh, regularly with uh, you know toxins drugs alcohol you know whatever then even on top of that you're going and eating really terrible bad food um and and, and there is a direct correlation between the leptin production which is a you know something that our body naturally produces and all of these genetically modified fats that we put into our system all of this sort of fast junk food and what they're starting to show is that you know when you do start eating a lot of this stuff um, the body produces this natural um, hormone called leptin which then goes to our brain goes to our hypothalamus releases the satiety sensation so that you know it actually tells our body a we're happy b we've had enough Um, but with all of this um, crap that we're putting into our systems um, it is absolutely affecting how our leptin is being produced and how the hypothalamus is actually reacting to that leptin and the and we're not getting that message sent to our from, from one from one receptor to the other so the 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 the, the, the hypothalamus is firing the leptin is being but we're not getting the message yeah we're satisfied yeah we're happy um, and that is a direct correlation to, to to what we eat and hence obesity comes into it and then depression follows on and then it just turns into this incredible vicious cycle and we are so deeply in that as a society that we can't even see it you know and i think that something else that we really try and do and that is why i think me cooking the style of food we do and trying to really tap into that ancient sort of magic of food is still very, very important, not just from a rehab point of view, but for your average Joe who comes in off the street as well. You've obviously been profoundly affected by that experience, but it's quite interesting because I guess the industry working in kitchens is known for high stress, um, rife with de- drug and potentially alcohol. depression, mm, yeah. um, drugs and alcohol. Absolutely right. What, have you, what did you take away from that experience and I guess apply it to your own career and perhaps the kitchens that you operate now? I, th- I think that process started before the sanctuary because I you know, did start very early in kitchens, um, 
did have, you know, go through my own stage in life of, of partying pretty hard. I mean, and it's, and it's right, you know, chefs work ridiculous hours. I mean, hospitality staff work very long hours. You know, it's not, it's not, well. it's not abnormal to do a 70, 80 hour week in, in, in a kitchen. Sleeps um, all over the place. Uh, uh, sleeps all over the place. Um, very high pressure, very high stress. Your adrenal gland is just like being hammered all the time. And you finish work at sort of 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning uh, when nothing is open except bars and pubs and, and places to go and get loose um, so it's kind of natural that you know uh, um, you know chefs and 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 hospitality staff too kind of tend to fall into this trap of uh, of of you know eating unhealthily uh, abusing the body quite a lot um, you know I was fortunate that I never really got into a lot of the hard drugs or anything like that I never utilized anything like um, speed to as a crutch for me to keep doing the long hours in the kitchens but what I did do and especially when I became a head chef and I started employing a lot of younger people um, is I saw a hell of a lot of really broken young kids um, you know especially throughout the 80s and the 90s when you know designer drugs and street drugs and all of this stuff became much more accessible and you know there's all of this stuff available you know much more easily to people was that a lot of these um, you know young kids were were coming in already uh, already on the gear or already like you know already had been through the dysfunctional life already which had made them or, or, or you know pushed them towards that kind of lifestyle and that kind of leaves them a bit out on the fringes of society. And the great thing about kitchens is it doesn't matter whether you're a white, black, female, gay, hermaphrodite, whale. It doesn't matter what you bring to the party. As long as you can actually fit in and do the job, you will be accepted. You know, there is, there is absolutely, you know, there's a real... Um, level playing field in kitchens in terms of you know it really it really doesn't matter how how, how messed up you are um, as long as you can come in as long as you're you you, you, you can do the job um, it's all right and what I did start to, 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 to see very quickly was a lot of uh, a lot of kids coming in um, to the kitchen uh, with these massive problems uh, with substance abuse problems and I found myself counseling these guys um, and helping them get clean um, and you know that that happened to me numerous numerous times where I'd see these really great guys really messed up and and what was common with all of them was that most of them had never felt like they'd done anything good in their life they'd never actually had this realization or this feeling that I'm worthy you know I, I actually have some skills I can bring something very beneficial to uh, to a workplace or to a to a party and you know I remember one young guy in particular um, Anthony um, we were doing a training program with the Adelaide Convention Centre through TAFE and we were getting all of these young troubled kids who'd been arrested and were like you know next step was jail um, you know actually had massive anger management problems you know he just was one of those kids who'd walk down the street and just sucker punch people for the hell of it because he was mad and because he didn't like the look of you he was also messed up on drugs and you know really 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 angry young man like and and he was given to me um, because you know I had a reputation of being a fairly hard taskmaster um, and uh, and being able to deal with these guys um, pretty well um, and, and, you know, for the first probably six weeks that he worked with me, he was fighting me and bucking against it and really, really, you know, being very aggro, causing a lot of trouble in my team, you know, being very disrespectful, very abusive. And, you know, I was just letting him, giving him rope and giving him rope and giving him rope and letting him go. But what I was doing is giving him a little bit more responsibility every day and giving him a few more jobs every day to the point where we put a special on one day. I and mean, it was a very open kitchen. 
and I told him it was his and that he was doing it. And basically from start to finish, over the previous few days, he'd prepped every item of it without realising. He didn't even know that he'd done that. And he came into work and it's like, OK, everything you've done over the last few days, we're going to put it on the bench and this is what you're doing with it. I showed him how we were going to plate it up. And at this stage, he still didn't get it. And then we got our first tables come in and sit down and a table sat down literally metres in front of him. He was staring straight at them. They ordered the special of the day. I'm like, you're up, mate, it's you. He puts this plate together, you know, puts it all on the plate. You know, you could see the kind of concentration and the, and, 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 and the anxiety coming out of him. He was really, really, never actually been in this kind of position before. And he was white-knuckling the pass, you know, holding on for dear life as the waitress came and picked up the plate and took it literally two steps to the table. Didn't stop staring at the woman who ordered it, watched her take her first mouthful, put it in her mouth, and she looked up and said thank you to him, and he burst into tears. And the guy turned into a blubbering mess. And he was just, no one had ever said thank you to him for anything in his life. No one had ever told him he was good at something. I was a blubbering mess. I burst into bloody tears. You know, I had to go and leave the kitchen and get out of there because he wasn't angry after that day. All of a sudden, he didn't want to punch people in the head anymore. And yes, I still had trouble with that guy. And yes, he still proved to be a handful for me. But that actual real demon that he was carrying around inside of him is I'm bloody shit I'm no good I'm just awful I'm a waste of space and no one you know I'm not never going to be any good to anyone that was gone suddenly he was useful and he was he was beneficial and he was part of our team and Valued. someone had actually appreciated something that he physically had done from start to finish and it was the first time in his life that it happened so you know that made me realize quite how powerful food can be and quite how powerful a kitchen environment can be in terms of helping people not just, you know, be great chefs or prepare great food, but to actually give them personal growth as well. And, you know, kitchens have helped me many ways in the same thing. I, I, I have this saying that we, we strive for the love. You know, the love is what food is all about and it's, it's the vital ingredient. You know, we, when, when, when love is in the food, you can taste it and it is the unknown thing that people go, you know, I don't know what I'm tasting, but it's amazing. But I think the recipe for the love is a triangle and the love sits in the middle um, and on each corner of the triangle is fear and hate and pain and you can't have the love without the fear or the hate or the pain because those are things that we experience every day in life and we all go to, I mean, we all we can all think of things that happen to us every day you know the fear of not being able to pay for your rent or the or you know the hate of uh, you know somebody you know disrespecting you or, or you know someone being aggressive or if you get you know your your you know, there's, or, or, the, or the pain, you know, we, we, we all deal with these emotions every day, but what is amazing about food is that you can come into a kitchen with all of these emotions and transfer them all into, for want of a better word, the love, you know, and, uh, and I think that is also very important. You need to understand, we need to understand in kitchens that that's what we bring to the party is not just the, the negative, it's the negative side of our, of, our, of our lives as well that we can then turn around in and make it into something very positive. And I think that was the Anthony story as well. Maybe that's why such broken people with such pain and fear can produce such love in their food because they've experienced that. Um, the, the depths of those things beyond maybe what some other people Absolutely, have. So, yeah. um, how would you describe, I guess, now the way that you lead the Bistro Don team and, I guess, um, the way that you structure it? A lot of people would be fascinated with the hierarchies involved in kitchens and, you know, the way that you punch out hundreds of meals in a short space of time. Yeah, it's... Uh 
it's a it's it's a it's a very very difficult job you know the job of of, of, of head chef and 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 you know the job of every chef in the kitchen it's um it requires um a huge amount of dedication you know there's a saying in kitchens that you don't call in sick you call in dead um you know and and and, and that's very much true i mean it's not the type of environment where you can just go oh i'm going to have a day off and uh and because because by doing that you're, you're really leaving the rest of your team absolutely in the shit um and so um, but you know, I, I, I suppose I've always had a bit of a reputation for hard love. Um, so what does that mean in practice? Like what would be an example of you dishing out some hard love? I don't, like it doesn't need to be specific examples, but typically when, what would really piss you off? Um, laziness and, 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 and no care factor and so I think what I really strive for and I really push my team really hard for is to be the best they can and if we're going to do something absolutely to push your abilities to the nth degree to try and achieve that level of perfection you know in what we're doing without being ridiculous about it because there's always got to be room for improvement but it is that it is that you know what I won't accept is near enough is good enough. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, if 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 we know that we can jump that high already, then we're going to push the bar two inches higher. So in in practice, does that mean like if there's a little splotch on a plate that probably shouldn't be there, as it's about to be taken out, you'd bring it back? Bring it back. Absolutely. What, what about right. from the preparation of food? Like when you cast your eyes over the guys doing the cooking, what do you, what is it that you're looking for? I'm I'm fascinated with the nuance. Yeah, I mean, it's it it, it all comes down to to, to the individuals and, and, and what they bring to the party. And, and it is, look, I've always said that there are two things that, um, well, no, there's, there's actually two things. What, what, what one is, you know, when it comes to being a chef, there's attitude and aptitude. Um, and so attitude is what you bring to the party. You have that, that's ingrown, that's inbuilt in you, and you are born with that. You know, I can't change your attitude. Um, aptitude is what you know. So I can, I can change the aptitude side of things. If you come to me with zero aptitude, you have no knowledge whatsoever of what we're doing, but you've got an awesome attitude, I can work with that. If you come to me with all the aptitude in the world and you've worked in three Michelin star restaurants and got all this experience, but your attitude sucks, I can't do anything for you. So, it, so number one, it is, it is finding people who have the right can-do attitude, who've got this positive, who, who, who may, you know, have a lot of fear, hate, pain in their life, but have this ability to transform it into something that resembles love um, and, and, you know, put that into their food. Um, and, and, and also, you know, just, just having an understanding of what we're actually trying to achieve here and, um, and trying to strive every day to, to, to reach those what often seem like unachievable or unattainable goals, but they're really not. I mean, they are achievable and they are attainable, but it takes a head chef as well who understands, like I said, the, the barrier going back to what we said, between artistry and production, because that's my job. If I turn around and create a menu that is unachievable for these guys, then I've set them up for a fail. So I really, first and foremost, need to come up with ideas and concepts and foods that everyone within their limitations of what they can and can't do is capable of and then push them as hard as I can and set the bar just high enough so they can reach it without making it unreachable for them as well. It's such a complex environment, the kitchen. Like, How do you establish your values and your culture and, and lead? I mean, is it, is it purely by the, the way you operate? Do you sit the guys down and read in the right act how does it work every individual is completely different so again like the sanctuary i think i take a bit of an approach of like uh, there's not one method of of, of of managing 
all people. I mean, every single member of my team takes a different kind of approach. You know, some the softly, softly approach works better. There are others that the hat, the, 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 the stick with the nail is the way forward because you know, the, because some people just, you know, really are that thick skin that you've really got to go in pretty hard. So you can't really have one approach for everybody. But I think, you know, um, uh, from my point of view, one of the one of the chefs I worked with early said to me, there's, a, there's this Chinese proverb, which is a fish stinks from the head. Um, so if the head of the fish is stinking, the rest of the fish is stinking, you know. And I, I live by that every day, you know. If I'm not prepared to do walk the walk as well as talk the talk, then how the hell can I expect my staff to? So really, leading by example is probably number one. I mean, that is the number one key to say, you know, yes, this is my expectation of you guys. This is what we're going to try and achieve for. But guess what? I'm going to be leading the charge. You know, the, the Turks are at the top of the bloody hill with the machine guns pointed down at us, and we're going up to get them. Are you with me? You know what I mean? If I'm sitting at the bottom of the hill going, I'm just going to sit here behind this sandbag and you guys can run up to the top of the hill and get mowed down by the turtle, no one's running up the hill. You know, so it really is, um, it really is. And I also, you know, got some good advice many years ago from a very wise man who said, you know, you, you can't expect everyone to have the same passion and the same drive as what you do. And he said, if you are fortunate enough to find people around you who, when you are doing 200 kilometers an hour and everything's going on and you look over your shoulder and they're there on your shoulder, be thankful for that. Don't expect it, you know? So I think, you know, but it is, um, but it is you know, the, 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 man the management side of, the, of, of, of running a kitchen is probably the hardest part of it. I mean, yes, the long hours are hard. Yes, coming up with these creative ideas, uh, achieving that level of perfection, uh, having the uh, continuity and uh, the consistency there every single time, all of that is difficult. But actually the people stuff is the hardest bit because we're all human and because we are working in you know very tight, very stressful, very fast-paced environment and you really get to see the very best and the very worst of people in that environment. We, uh, we are going to touch on the MasterChef uh, sure. experience in just a second, but I do have one more final question in terms of some of this structure-based stuff. It's one of those rare industries where in some instances, like you, sometimes the, the owner of a, a business might be beholden to someone working within the business in that um, chefs can be the product yeah. and can wield a lot of power over owners of restaurants. What's your experience been like over the journey with the owners of a business? Because um, quite famously, a lot of chefs are prima donnas and they just throw the towels in the air and they just walk out when they've had enough. Yeah, um, and you're very right about that. I mean, it is, uh, it is, um, it is very much the, 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 the cult of the celebrity chef is, 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 is very much alive and kicking these days, uh, much more so than it ever was. So I think that what you're talking about is becoming more of an issue to business owners than maybe it was you know, 20, 30 years ago when, uh, when you know, the uh, celebrity chef thing wasn't, we didn't have the TV shows and all of the, all of the, the mass media, you know, really promoting that side of things. Um, I really do feel that, um, you know, no one is indispensable and, um, and, and but on the same note, um, you know, you can't be beholden to anybody on your team. I mean, it's the same for me. I mean, I, I come into work, I might put a hell of a lot of time and effort and investment into a certain staff member um, 
who you spend so much time training to get them to a certain point that you want them to be at and then they turn around and go, oh, I've taken a job somewhere else. And then you go and look for a few months later, they've taken the head chef job and lo and behold, a lot of your old dishes suddenly appear on their menu. <laughs> um, you know, no. you can't get upset by that. In fact, it's, you know, uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery is the only way to take that. Um, um, but it is a very, very difficult um, difficult scenario and it's one that every restaurateur will understand and know well and it's, um, it's also a reason why you know good restaurateurs and people who really do uh, understand the industry will take the time and effort to nurture their staff and to uh, really understand what the needs of the staff are and yes you can work your staff long hours, hard hours but you know what you have to nurture them and look after them as well. Um, and I think the restaurants that have very high turnover in staff and, uh, and, uh, and you know, really uh, struggle to hang on to their staff, there is an inherent cultural problem there inside that place where there's not the two-way street of respect going on or understanding or nurturing of the staff. And, you know, really... Uh, and it really is a very family affair in kitchens. I mean, I... I, I, I still get phone calls at three o'clock in the morning from people who were chef commie chef now who are now head chefs in their own right, but they were my commies 15 years ago. Um, they still ring me at three o'clock in the morning when they're struggling with something in their kitchen. They still call me chef. You know, we're still on that same level. So I mean, it's kind of in a way once you've made that bond with people in that kind of environment and you've seen the very best and the very worst of them, there is that real family bond going on there. And um, and I think nurturing that in a kitchen as well and nurturing. You know, because families have big issues. I mean, they fight, but they also love each other, you know, and you can fight with somebody and love them at the same time. It's, it's totally possible. And I think that is kind of not exactly like that, but that is very much the dynamic of the kitchen. There is a lot of potential for things to go pear-shaped, a lot of potential for people to lose their tempers and to, uh, and to not show respect to their fellow team members, but... It's understanding that when that stuff happens, it is in the heat of the moment and being able to address it properly afterwards and deal with it properly and make people feel like they are heard, like they're respected and like they're valued. And I think if you can do that for people, it's amazing what they'll do. They'll walk over thousands of kilometres of broken glass for you at that point, you know, because, because I suppose it's, it's, it's a bit of a rarity in the industry. You mentioned cult of the celebrity chef yes. as someone who's been on MasterChef. I've certainly contributed to that. <laughs> <laughs> you how, sell out. How do you? Well, how do you? I guess see the impact of uh, the world of MasterChef, celebrity chef. Is, is it a good or a bad thing, or otherwise for the industry? I think I don't think you can say it's good or bad. I think it, I think it's a bit like saying you know the, it was video a good or a bad thing for cinema and movies. You know, like it's not. It, it, it's the way the world is going. Um, it is what it is what the people want. Um, obviously, uh, with all of these food programs that have come out, um, when I watched MasterChef before I went on it, I was very, very critical of the uh, not, not critical, but I was critical is not the right word. Skeptical. I suppose skeptical of the process and of how real it was, and uh, and and you know what what really went on behind the scenes and, and you know you know you see these people you know breaking down and pressure and crying and it's like well you know surely it can't be that hard or that stressful or that bad um, I really only I, I didn't apply to go on on the program at all I'd, um, I'd, I'd, I'd been involved in a serious car accident um, while I was working at the sanctuary um, I'd been forced to uh, stop work because of the car accident um, you know I'd been pretty badly injured. I'd had some time off work. I was kind of at a loose end. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was not well enough to get back into a, you know, a la carte restaurant and do all of the ridiculous hours. Um, 
and uh, and all and so I was doing just some casual hours for a friend of mine, helping them out in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day my phone rang with an unknown number, and it was uh, the producers from Shine. They'd been given my number by the uh, Byron Bay Tourism Commission, um, and uh, and they rang up and said, uh, you know, we're doing the first Australian professional MasterChef series. Would you like to be a part of it? Out of the blue, I mean, I wasn't. It was it was a complete. I was floored, to be honest. I um. My initial reaction was, hell no. Um, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, and, and it really was. I was vehemently... I didn't say that on the phone. I said, look, give me some time to think about it. I'll get back to you. And I went home and I talked with my lovely partner and um, we discussed it. And I came to the idea that, you know what, an opportunity like that really doesn't come along every day. Um, as much as I was not a big fan of MasterChef at the time and never really paid much attention to it. I'd watched a couple of episodes and kind of disregarded it as being sort of, you know, this kind of made-up sort of thing. You know, lots of fluff and, and, and smoke and mirrors is what the way I kind of saw it. Um, but then I turned around and thought about it and thought, you know what, if I actually don't do this 10 years down the track, I'll probably really regret it. You know, like it'll probably be one of those decisions that I'll go, no, I don't want to do it, and then go... Damn, I should have done that. I should have just, just for the experience of it. So that was my um, thinking behind it, behind agreeing to uh, go and, uh, and um, do the audition. Um, and then from the audition, I ended up getting on the show and it was, uh, and it was a really, really incredible experience. Um, one that I wouldn't change at all. It was, uh, it was really amazing and, um, and changed the way I saw the whole reality TV thing a lot, you know, it was because um, it really is real. And um, Well, here's your chance to give us some insight because I'm probably a bit like you and I, I think people like sort of like insert cry here, you know, I feel like the whole thing's a bit staged and there's a bit of formula to it. But if, if it's possible just to give us an insight into what it is like when you peel back the layers, um, what, it what is, happens? It is one of the most full-on things I've ever done in my life. I mean, you know, I've worked in a lot of restaurants and a lot of kitchens and, uh, you know, worked in some really... Uh, pretty pretty stressful and 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 crazy places um master chef just took that and took it to a whole new level because again i mean much like the client the sanctuary clients coming in you go into lockdown straight away you get your phone taken away from you your money's taken away from you you have zero contact with the outside world you're not allowed to watch tv you're not allowed to see the news you you, you literally are in this kind of suspended state of animation um and that is instantly as soon as you get off the plane and the producers get you into the car bang your life has changed and at that point you are left completely in the dark. You have no idea what's happening one day to the next. Um, you know, your alarm goes off at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, you're on a bus at quarter to five. You don't know where you're going. Uh, you know, you rock up to wherever it be at the studio or wherever you're going to be filming on that day. And literally, I mean, with zero idea of what's happening, um, then you go through all of the process of doing the, uh, you know, the pre limb stuff for the shoots the walking in the walking out that can take a few hours that's it just gets you even more wound up because you're like constantly thinking what are we doing what are we doing and you can't just All check, of check the, the scores of the footy no, or you, you, can't, can't. You, you don't know where, where, where the third world wars <laughs> erupted while you've been in there all of the contestants are all going through this speculation of what are we doing today what are we doing today which is just making the uh, anxiety even higher and then you know maybe you might get to the studio or the point of where you're shooting at sort of 5 five thirty in the morning it may not be till midday um, you know or one o'clock in the afternoon that you actually then go and stand in front of a camera I'm exhausted with, already with the guests there. Mm. yeah already oh you know you've already been through 
lots of hours of, of, of your brain just doing your head in. Um, and, and, and then it's at that point, literally when they start shooting, that they, as they shoot and they tell you, this is the challenge today, your time starts now. And it is, it is real. That is real time. That is actually what's happening. You literally have no idea. You've got seconds to, to think in your head, what the hell am I going to do here? And then you might have one minute in the pantry to go and grab all your stuff. So that is when... And then also I think that's that, why everyone cries, and then, because well, they're then, just then, so exhausted. That, but then you've, each person has got their story producer, which is leaning over shoulders. So what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you coming up with? What are you making? What are you going... And it is. I mean, it is. it seems like... When you watch it on the TV, it says, oh, God, it can't be that hard. All you've got to do is cook one meal in an hour. Um, but the reality of it is absolutely so different. I mean, you are in this suspended state of heightened awareness, heightened animation, and it is nonstop like that. And they keep you like that day after day. You're also mic'd up from the moment you get in in the morning. So you've got the whole production team are listening to everything you say for the whole day. And what you'll find is as you go talking to the other people, you'll tell them what your fears are, what your weaknesses are. And those things find their way into the challenges, you know. And so it is very, very tricky the way they do it. And they really do work on your emotions. And, and yes, I mean, I remember the producers saying, you know, there is a level of crying which is perfect. Um, <laughs> choking up and having us one tear Just run down your face is the nirvana of crying. <laughs> Bawling, blubbering, like, that's like, messy. like that's, that's messy, messy that's and ugly. it doesn't that's make ugly. good TV. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they really are. They're trying to push you to that point where they really tap into your emotions and they really get you to start feeling it. And the people on that TV, when they're watching the TV, they see that and they can relate to it and it sort of makes you a human, I suppose, as well. So, um, you know, and I did. I mean, I had some hugely emotional moments on the show, uh, moments where I didn't expect to feel like that. And, you know, you are put under the spotlight. They are, like, asking you all of these questions and all of a sudden you just, you can't help it, but you just, you know, the, 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 the pressure and the build-up and all of it just comes out. And especially if you've come off, I'm assuming, working, doing stuff with The Sanctuary. Yeah. And you've been involved in a car, like, car accident previous to that. So yeah. you've probably got this stuff going on in your world anyway. Absolutely. And they make you the car accident guy, you know, <laughs> at that point. You know, you are, you know, and they do. I mean, they do very Vi much Violin picture. playing yeah, in the background. You know, we're, we're, you know and, and, and you can understand why the producers do that. That's part yeah. of the storyline. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was under no illusions at all when I started there that I was the car accident <laughs> comeback bloke, um, you know, and that was very much how they were pushing it. So they were very much utilising that in the story. They also ask a lot about your background and your childhood and they ask you to tap into that in your cookery and you know what really made you forms you as a chef and by asking you to do that all the time and getting you to think about that that really does bring forth all mm. of these emotions and, and and you know and i suppose at the end of the day it makes for good tv um and and, and it sort of makes We're, people uh, you know, you've really won me back over with it now yeah i'm gonna look, have to i'm gonna have to yeah. check it out yeah it's uh, look I, I was i was certainly um look i'm 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 i'm, I'm not saying that obviously it is a tv show and obviously they are following very set patterns um you know, I, I found that there were times where maybe I wouldn't have agreed with the outcome of certain challenges, that I thought certain dishes did better in certain challenges than other dishes. Maybe, you know, there, there, there is a certain element of some people, you know, get through um, uh, on the merits of, of, of not so much what they cooked on the day, but what maybe they will be bringing to the next challenge. Mm. Um, and I'm not denying that at all, but what is very, very real is the challenges, the time frames, and the pressure that you see on the TV. I mean, that is absolutely real. Well, it's been a fascinating chat. I um, rapid fire. Oh, do we have? I don't yes, know if this, I've got some rapid fire already. Okay, so this is part of the podcast where we finish off and we ask. Uh, we will have to be quick, though. I am conscious of Luke's poorly time. scripted questions yep. because we actually don't know what the questions are. Cool. Rapid fire answers. Um, so feel free to be as short. Um, sure. 
My first one is, on a good night, how many dishes would you plate up? Well, we do the deg menu, which is uh, 12 items per person. We can do maybe 30 deg a night. So that would be 360 plus some other car, up to 500 plates a night in a small restaurant. I was going to say, how many, how many 30, square metres? 35, 40-seater restaurant. Jeez. In your career, the biggest stuff up you ever made... Or perhaps a, a, a memorable moment for the wrong reasons. I'd imagine it's a... Memorable, the, you know, the biggest stuff up I ever made was when I first owned my own restaurant and believing that everyone would do the right thing by you. Going <laughs> in with, this, uh, with this kind of naive idea that if I worked hard and did the right thing, that all of these people around me would also do the right thing. I got the place bought out from under me. I lost the restaurant and I ended up, you know, uh, going into, uh, you know, holding the, the, the can for a lot of money. Um, and, 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 and that's because I didn't actually get a lease officiated properly because I had this kind of naive concept Concept that I'll do the right thing by people, they'll do the right thing by me. But then again, I got told that once you, when my, the, my, my account at the time said, look, once you lick the bottom of the barrel, you'll never forget that taste and you'll never go back there again. So, you know, every cloud has a I silver lining. I just line. feel like we're just, we're barely even scraping the surface of, of your story. We need a part like, two. One of the most famous, or sorry, one of, the fam one of the most famous people that you've cooked for that you can tell us about. Um, one of the people I'm really, really proud of cooking for, um, um, oh God, I've just had a mental blank up and I, That's um, right. Um, who am I thinking of? Uh, you can they pass. They made a movie about the blind, the blind black piano um, blues guy. Um, they, they made the Ray movie. Charles. Ray Charles. Yeah, Ray Charles. Where was um, that? That was in McLaren Vale. Just before he died, the year before he died, he came and did an open air concert in McLaren Vale. Um, he came and ate at Darry's Veranda where I was one of the chefs at the time and, uh, and we went out and printed his menus up in Braille for him. <laughs> um, and that was, uh, that was an incredible. He was so appreciative of that. Um, look, I've cooked for a lot of, uh, a lot of very, uh, very famous people. Um, but look, look, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, th I think the Ray Charles experience is one that I really remember. I'll go the opposite to my last question. Your most memorable or, or, or favourite meal, something that's stuck with you in your career in terms of a meal that you've made or um, that you've put together? I kind of go back to when I was a much younger guy and I, 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 one of the first times I cooked a paella, which was the Spanish seafood mm. and rice dish, and I did it up in this uh, masia, which was like a 600-year-old farmhouse up on the top of this mountain. There was a lot of friends and family around. It was the first time I'd ever cooked a paella over open fire or open coals, and it was probably the biggest one I'd done to that, up to that point, which was sort of for about 30 or 40 people. Um, and that was... A, my introduction into cooking paella, which I've done a lot of since then, and B, probably one of my really first introductions into cooking over with open, with open fire as well. Um, and I definitely, that, that one meal just sticks in my memory as being something very memorable that I uh, yeah, really, really look back on with fond memories. Going to have a long lunch somewhere in the world. Where would you have it? Anywhere in Spain. Because basically a long lunch in Spain can go for most of the week. Um, <laughs> really, it can start on Tuesday and still be going on Sunday. Um, and, you know, I do, I also really, really love the way they, they think about food. I mean, here's a country that's prepared to shut down the whole country for three hours in the afternoon because we've all had a big feed and we need to sleep. I mean, that is... Got the priorities right. They have got their priorities straight, yeah. Well, I think that's it for me, James. I've had an 
absolute cracking time. We've had amazing food. Those those three plates were magnificent. It, so it, was, the, it was the tuna, it was the uh, prawns, prawns and, and the, the pork. pork cheek, yeah. Yep. Um, so in order for me, I love the prawns. I So prawns, number one. I I loved the pork and then I loved the tuna in that order. Right. Yeah, prawns were favourite for me. It's just I haven't had anything like that before, I don't think. For me, the, the tuna would be an amazing, obviously, for me, amazing starter. Yeah. Like, just so fresh. and Yeah. Well, essentially, that is the first three courses of, uh, of, of a degustation menu we're running at the moment. So if you were to come in and order the chef's menu, you, you, you could easily start with the tuna. Next dish would be the prawns, then you'd move on to the pork, and then we'd finish you off with the duck or lamb or, you know, something a little bit more, uh, more uh, sort of hearty at that point. Well, Luke... So that you can go and put everything that you've talked about in the last hour and a bit into practice here at Bistro, Dom. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, If people do want to come and experience your um, incredible feasts, uh, you're open... We are uh, so we're at 24 Weymouth Street uh, in the CBD, and uh, we, we, we're doing uh, dinners in the restaurant from Tuesday to Saturday. Um, lunches from 6 p.m. till late, and lunches are from Wednesday to Friday. Uh, we also have um, the uh, kitchen door has a kiosk out the back where we're doing street food, um, you know, at a much uh, cheaper price point. But also everything's handmade, and uh, you know we're sort of replicating the bistro dom experience, but on a street level. Um, and the uh, and the back door kiosk is open from Tuesday to Friday from uh, 11. 30 onwards. Haven't even talked about that. Um, and if, if people come in and mention Rooster Radio, you're going to personally sit down with them for an hour and give them a nutritional <laughs> advice plan. So as and the psychology as well. Look, thank yeah, you so much again. We've no absolutely worries, loved guys. it, and we yeah. probably will be back for a part two. In yeah, the look, let's do a part two. I think we've just scratched the surface, so, I think uh, so. you know, there's definitely some more uh, material there. Absolutely. Thank you very much, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys another time. Thanks for listening to our chat with Luke Southwood. If you're in Adelaide, make sure you stop by for a meal at Bistro Dom. Check out bistrodom.com.au. Now, we have a great Rooster Radio event coming up on November 17, featuring craft beer, a live interview and great people to hang out with. If you want an invite, sign up to our mailing list at roosterradio.biz and you'll get a link to the invitation. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Catch you later.